these rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard, a show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women. I'm Maureen. And I'm Mexi. And today we'll be talking about carceral feminism. And we've decided to talk about this. Well, it's a, it's a topic that really interests both of us, but it was an idea given to us by Andrew. So thank you, Andrew. They wrote us an email and in the later half, it said, also read an amazing article by Alex Press about carceral feminism and was wondering if either of you had read it or had any thoughts about it. And I had actually shared it on my Privilege Vegan page before we received this message. Hmm. So, yes, and now we both have read it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and done some additional reading on carceral, fe- carceral feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, I was first introduced to the idea actually on Rev Left Radio. So shout out to Rev Left Radio. They had Victoria Law on the show, and um, yeah, it was really interesting. Cool. And Maureen, I think you actually studied with the person who invented the term. Yes. Yep. Um, Elizabeth Bernstein, a professor of women's studies and sociology at Barnard College of Columbia University, invented the term carceral feminism. And fun fact, she was actually my advisor. So That's amazing. I personally know her. I don't know if she was, I don't know how well she remembers me, but she was lovely <laughs> and very insightful. And I did take a story. class with her. Oh, oh my God, that would make me scared. <laughs> um, but no, it's true. Um, I took a class with her partner about how sex trafficking, especially since the 1990s, has been used to demonize and categorize all sex work as the same thing and as issues that need policing um Mm -hmm. and arrests so we'll we'll Mm -hmm. put some links about that in the i was going to say the description box the show notes because that's not exactly what we're going to be talking about today but it certainly is an important aspect that i think Mm -hmm. falls under the umbrella of carceral feminism Mm -hmm. yeah so uh to start off Maybe, Maureen, if you could explain with your vast experience with Elizabeth Bernstein. (laughs) I don't know if I would call it vast experience. That's a little (laughs) bit stressful, but yeah, sure. So we're going to start off the show by talking about what carceral feminism is, and then we're going to move into a discussion about the history of carceral feminism, notably certain crime bills that really embody this type of movement as well as some of the problems with carceral feminism that arose out of those crime bills being passed. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we're going to talk also a little bit about the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. And then we'll finish with a discussion of alternative approaches and notable activists that have already denounced carceral feminism. So as I said, carceral feminism was a term invented by Elizabeth Bernstein, Uh, The term seeks to name a certain type of feminism, one that relies heavily on policing, prosecution, and imprisonment to resolve issues of gendered and sexual violence. Elizabeth Bernstein first wrote about carceral feminism to describe how neoliberalism has shaped a, quote, carceral turn in feminist advocacy movements previously organized around struggles for economic justice and liberation. So, in other words, mainstream feminism began to divert their attention from pursuing collective and redistributive strategies 
which would set up the preconditions that were necessary for feminist liberation to instead focus on punitive strategies. So in essence, this makes feminist movements allies to neoliberalism's agenda to dismantle the welfare state and focus instead on replacing it with the carceral state. In this scenario, the law enforcement apparatus becomes the main enactor for feminist goals. So instead of posing feminism as fundamentally incompatible with the state, it makes feminism out to be an ally of corporate capitalism by being a supporter of carceral paradigms of justice. Mm-hmm. So that's the little that's the little paragraph I wrote to define carceral feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have anything to add? Um Not really. I mean, yeah, it's just basically the idea that the best way to address violence against women is to have more punitive charges and, and, you know, harsher sentences for abusers. But as we know, that really hasn't made much of a difference in violence against women um, or, you know, sexual assault against women. Like, it's certainly not keeping us safe. Mm Mm-hmm. So, for example, an initiative that would fall under the banner of carceral feminism, so just to illustrate what we're talking about, would be, for example, an effort to pass a crime bill to arrest and imprison perpetrators of sexual harassment in the workplace. So even though we fully recognize that it's important to help victims of sexual harassment seek legal protection, Mm -hmm. certain activists would argue Um, and at least the ones who argue against carceral feminism, that directing the movement's energy into the criminal justice system allies us with a system that is incompatible with the liberation of marginalized communities. It puts our trust in the incarceration system, which we know disproportionately harms people of color and poor people, and expands the arm of the criminal justice system, um, which will also necessarily harm those, disproportionately keep harming those marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though legal protection for victims is important, and admittedly, this is a pretty hard thing to talk about because we certainly recognize that, um, looking to the criminal justice system also has its problem. So in the scenario that I talked about, perhaps rather than redirecting all of our efforts towards empowering the police state to intervene in this problem, we also need to create stronger worker rights so that victims can speak out without fear of losing their jobs. We also need to push for efforts that will reduce inequality between members of a company so that no one has the power to abuse someone with impunity like that which has been done for a very, very long time. So even though obviously it's important to have protection for the victim Mm -hmm. and empower them to seek retribution, only looking to the carceral state makes us overlook these like basic worker rights uh, problems and also makes us overlook like the, the drastic inequality that exists in corporate capitalism that allows a small minority to abuse so many people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, if women want to prosecute their abusers, that's, you know, they should have the resources to do that. But the point is that um, focusing on that as the solution to the problem, it really ignores the broader social relations that need to change if this problem isn't going to just keep replicating itself over and over and over and over. So, you know, it's not a long term strategy or it's not a comprehensive strategy. Mm-hmm. It may, you know, and I think we'll talk later about some of the other approaches that might help to, you know, shift 
societally what we need to shift to actually help um, redress, you know, rape culture and, and abuse against women and and all those horrible things that we're so far having to lean on the the carceral state to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, this movement started largely as a white feminist movement. Surprise, surprise. Um, so in the 1970s, domestic abuse was kind of considered just something that you had to deal with as a woman as that's just the way men are. And if you actually called the police and they responded, typically they would just say something like, oh, you know, why don't you take a walk, buddy? Or like, why don't you cool off? And then that's basically it, right? Um, So women were getting obviously (laughs) upset about this and they started a bunch of class action lawsuits against police departments. And that's what led to the uh, Violence Against Women's Act in 1994 um, under the Clinton administration. So this was included in the largest crime bill in U.S. history. It was a $30 billion piece of legislation, uh, and it funded the hiring of 100,000 new police officers across the country. It also mandated that police had to make an arrest if they responded to a domestic violence call, which might sound like something positive i actually don't think it sounds positive um in any situation but obviously this has been incredibly problematic and it's led to a lot of victims being arrested instead of their perpetrators because now the cops showing up are the ones who are making the decision of who is really at fault here and you know what's really going on as if they have any insight really you know Mm -hmm. yeah and the the bill that you're talking about of that thirty billion dollars that was funded or that was allocated to the bill, ten billion of it went to building new prisons mm. or like revamping the old ones. So mm-hmm. I, and and notably the Violence Against Women Act, which like is commonly referred to as VAWA. I don't know if you found that also yeah. on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it provided one point six billion towards the investigation and prosecution of violent crimes against women imposed automatic and mandatory restitution for those convicted and allowed civil redress in cases prosecutors chose to leave unprosecuted. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I think that any piece of legislation that mandates the arrest of anybody, like even if you get to the scene of the crime and, you know, you need a little bit more time to investigate or you actually think that no one should be arrested, like the Mm -hmm. fact that you absolutely must arrest someone is just ludicrous to me Mm -hmm. no it is it's ridiculous yeah what if you got there and things had cooled off and they were like actually no i don't want to press charges but you have to press charges (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's ridiculous um but yeah and i mean i have some stories that i'll share later about women who were on the receiving end of this who were being incredibly abused And they got punished Mm -hmm. for being abused and locked up Mm -hmm. in this ridiculously over bloated, you know, mass incarceration system in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's reason to be concerned about the fact that somebody must be arrested when we know the propensity of police officers to perpetuate violence and to be abusers themselves. Like Mm -hmm. in that in that article that 
Andrew mentioned, um, which was published on Vox, which we'll link in the description box below, not the description box, uh, the (laughs) show notes. Um, Studies have found that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence significantly higher than the 10% of families in the general population, according to the the National Center for Women and Policing. And when I read the article for the first time, this was the single like biggest statistics that jumped out at me. I just mm-hmm. could not believe it. I mean, mm-hmm. 40% mm-hmm. as compared with 10% of, of like families in the general population. Like that is mm-hmm. fucking terrifying. I know. That's almost half. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly not that surprised though. I mean, like you see some of these – you know, videos of police like manhandling poor black kids. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff they do is just downright, you know, I don't want to sound ableist, but it's like psychotic. Like, it's just like, Mm -hmm. there is something going on. Like, and if you would abuse another human in that way, I'm really not surprised that you might abuse people who you think are in your control, like your children or your wife. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like you're in an, envir- in an environment where you're constantly around violence, but also you're like the person with the upper hand. You know, you start mm-hmm. to think you're the arbiter of whether or not that violence is like should be going on. So, mm-hmm. no, it's true that. Yeah, authority goes to your head like that. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, listen to me because I am the authority. Like how many how many videos have been caught on tape of, you know, just poor people being like, hey, you know, why am I being stopped or why are you doing this to me? And just the fact of being asked, why are you doing this is such an unbearable challenge to their authority that that's when they start to get violent and demand they get out of the car and demand they get down on the ground and do all these humiliating right. things just to show them like – you know, you don't get to talk to me. I get to tell you what to do, right? It's just disgusting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's again, like part of this paradigm that that just the justice or like the carceral state is the arbiter of all that is true and fair and equal. Mm-hmm. And that these people like are being paid with our tax dollars because they're supposed to enforce like equity in our society. Mm-hmm equity my ass they're supposed yeah. they're there to pr- they're there to protect private property that's literally. what our state forces are there to do literally yep. mm-hmm. so i don't know why anyone thinks this is a great institution no girl me neither <laughs> <laughs> it's like the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll see you next week <laughs> Um, yeah, and and there's there's a well-established pattern of police officers committing rape and sexual assault against those that they arrest. So to illustrate mm-hmm. our point, sexual misconduct is the second most commonly reported form of police misconduct. Mm-hmm. Like, terrifying shit. Like, when you know yeah. that these are the people that we're, like, mandating for them to arrest someone when they get mm-hmm. to the scene of a domestic violence or, like, gendered violence crime that they... Like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm only going to share four stories today that are pretty gross, but other stories I was reading involved the police, um, like, raping, con- like, continually raping poor women of color and them not being being able to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. fucking, fucking horrible. Yeah. I mean, like, rape in communities of color and in the, his- you know, in the history of, like, slavery and colonialism can be Mm -hmm. a whole you know is a whole other topic but Mm -hmm. uh, side note for a second for a couple hundred years 
black women were deemed unrapeable because they were so mm. in white supremacist culture they were seen as like so promiscuous and basically always always wanting it honestly it like hurts me to even say these like atrocious things but mm-hmm. literally like white supremacist society thought that they were unrapeable thought that it wasn't <sighs> possible that they would not want to you know be penetrated <sighs> by a white man like huge trigger warning on this episode <laughs> probably should have started with that because <laughs> like i'm triggered hearing that <laughs> i know I'm like honestly that like makes me want to scream and like just tear this whole society to the ground yeah and there was actually just an episode which um will will link as well by one of my favorite podcasts ever called the inner ho uprising that's called the ogs of the me too movement and it documents this whole history of you know black women being deemed unrapeable and also just who started the hashtag and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all the history of like lynching black men for supposedly and, uh, you know, uh, incorrectly raping white women and all of that. Like there's so many racial complexities in this Mm -hmm. discussion about rape that we're just not going to have time to, to tackle today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I digress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, another part of uh, this Vox article that I thought was interesting was that even the act of calling 911 itself can ruin a victim's life. Um, So female tenants are often forced from their homes for making 911 calls about domestic violence because landlords often use police calls to their property as grounds for removal. What? Yeah. Even more terrible. Um nuisance property ordinances allow police to punish landlords if too many 911 calls are made from their properties so landlords are sometimes told to evict the source of the calls even if that person is a domestic violence victim using 911 as a lifeline wow i had no idea sorry i just screamed that but like that like that's a whole other aspect of commercial feminism that's problematic as fuck that I had not mm-hmm. considered. Mm-hmm. And like obviously like lower income buildings are going to have more 911 calls or at least like are going to be like mm-hmm. policed way more than like apartments on like the Upper East Side of New York City or something, you know. So, wow, that like directly harms mm-hmm. marginalized communities more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess. Absolutely. So do, I So do all the other laws. <laughs> I was watching a lecture by Beth Ritchie from the University of Illinois uh, about uh, black feminist reflections on carceral feminism. And um, it was amazing. This, that's actually where I'm getting two of the stories that I'm going to share today. Um, but yeah, she really talks about how uh, low income women and obviously black women or, or women of color are so much more vulnerable to domestic abuse um, because obviously if you're low income, you don't have the safety nets that you need to leave abusive relationships mm-hmm. um, and or you don't have the ability to leave an unsafe job where you're being abused by your employer as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. And I, I think that example, the 911 example just really underscores that uh, police are there to protect private property. Like police are there to protect the landlords. They're not there to protect the victims at all. It's like, oh, you're being a nuisance from calling so often. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I have nowhere to go because 
there's no economic safety net for me. So I'm stuck here. So I'm going to keep calling because I'm like being killed. Mm -hmm. But okay, yeah, just evict me then. That'll help. Right. That'll put that'll put me in a position where I won't be abused or won't have to be abused. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And meanwhile, I mean, touching on like what you said about like welfare and how marginalized like women of color and how low income women of color are the ones most at risk of not being able to leave situations of domestic abuse. It's very ironic. And this was pointed out in a lot of the articles that I think we both read that the Clinton administration passed this, you know, he was like notorious for wanting to be tough on a crime and passed this huge crime bill and, you know, notably the Violence Against Women Act. But simultaneously, he was boasting about you know, quote, ending welfare as we know it. And he mm -hmm. started like the massive efforts to dismantle welfare. Mm -hmm. And he passed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity and Reconciliation Act. By the way, the word personal responsibility makes my, like, makes me have like goosebumps because mm -hmm. I just fucking hate that trope of neoliberalism so much. Mm -hmm. It makes but me sick. Oh my god, like personal responsibility and work opportunity act. Like, work opportunity. Like literally makes me gag <laughs> in my mouth. Yeah. What does that translate into? You have the opportunity to work. Yeah. Because we're not gonna give you any welfare. And to finally take personal responsibility, Maxie. Yeah. This is just God, we should we really should be thinking. It's just so funny. It's like it's not the like we're removing all your welfare act. It's you now have the opportunity to work act. <laughs> Yay! It's literally called the Personal <laughs> Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. Oh man. Like, it's disgusting. Anyway, so it's disgusting. So this act set a five year limit on welfare. Because you know, if you need to go on welfare, like there there's if you're taking personal responsibility, there's just no way that you wouldn't want the opportunity to work after five years. Actually, you um, have to work after And it two required years. recipients to... Oh, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It required recipients to work after two years, regardless of other circumstances. And it instated a lifetime ban on welfare for those convicted of drug felonies or who had violated probation or parole. Mm -hmm. And as we're going to see in a second, female victims of abuse are very likely to be behind bars and to be, you know, those convicted felons that aren't going to be allowed to have welfare ever once they get out of jail. So, mm -hmm. yeah, also like convicted felons in terms of drugs, it's like, oh, no, they smoked weed. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, we should probably link a bunch of stuff in the show notes <laughs> i was gonna say a description box also um we probably link a bunch of stuff in the show notes like maybe the vegan were princesses attack episodes on the prison system and um all of the completely racist and unjust uh drug laws that are targeting communities of color and poor communities etc um which we don't have time to go into now but yeah so following this act by the end of the 90s the number of people receiving welfare the majority of whom are women and you know women are often the ones left to take care of children alone um so the number of people receiving welfare fell 53 percent so this really stripped the economic safety nets that allowed survivors to flee abusive relationships mm -hmm. or to, you know, like it stripped the their ability to leave abusive employers because yeah. their precarious workers 
with no social safety nets, thanks to conservative economics. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to share a few stories now of women who were just totally devastated by these carceral feminist laws um, after being abused. So um, two of these come from Victoria Law in her article Against Carceral Feminism. The first is a story about Cherie Williams. Uh, she's 35-year-old African-American woman living in the Bronx, and she was living with an abusive boyfriend. So she called the cops. Um, but, of course, uh, after the VAWA Act, police were required to make an arrest when responding to domestic violence calls. Um, however, the officers pulled up, but they just didn't leave their car. Like, they just didn't bother to get out for some reason. Um, so, Like Willie- the, the police, the policemen? Yeah, so technically they were required to come and make an arrest, but they just pulled up and didn't leave the car. So Cherie went up to them and demanded their badge numbers, and in like a typical macho show of force, the police handcuffed her, drove her to a deserted parking lot, beat her, broke her nose and jaw, ruptured her spleen, and left her on the ground. And they told her if they saw her on the street that they would kill her. What the fuck? That was in 1999, a half decade after the passage of this law. So were these so, officers uh, charged yeah. in a certain way under these laws? or No, not at all. So, I, I mean, it just shows you like the, the precariousness or just the vulnerability of poor women of color um, in a lot of these situations. So this... One is even worse, um, if you can imagine it. So in 2012, a woman named Marissa Alexander, who was a black mother in Florida, was arrested because uh, her husband was attacking her. And so she fired a warning shot into the air. And her husband left the house and called the police. So she was arrested. And even though he hadn't been injured at all, she was prosecuted for aggravated assault. She argued that her actions were justified because Florida had a stand your ground law, um, which George Zimmerman got off on um, for killing that 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Um, However, Marissa was unsuccessful in using that defense. In her husband's deposition, he actually admitted to abusing her and admitting to abusing other women um, who he had kids with, but the jury still found her guilty. And then the prosecutor added the state's 10 to 20 life sentencing enhancement, which mandates a 20 year sentence when a firearm is discharged. Holy fuck. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was no, it, I, it's not a professional abs- reaction, <laughs> but like, what the hell? So then in 2013, a court overturned her conviction, but in response, the prosecutor has vowed to seek a 60-year sentence during her trial that was coming up. So, like, are you kidding me? And um, Victoria Law says that uh, many domestic violence survivors have been forced to endure additional assault by the legal system in New York state. 67% of women sent to prison for killing someone close to them had been abused by that person in California. A study found that 93% of women who had killed their significant others had been abused by them. 
Mm-hmm. And 67% reported they, they had been attempting to protect themselves and their children at the time. And yet they are incarcerated right. for, for up to 60 years. Yeah, I think we need to understand that most of the women that are behind bars currently, I don't know if most, you know, I don't have the stats for this, but so many of them are victims of abuse. And that's how Mm -hmm. they ended up there. You know, like, Mm -hmm. our prisons are filled with like survivors. Mm -hmm. So wanting to strengthen the arm of the carceral state, when you look at it that way, really doesn't make sense. Mhm. Yeah, and and even, you know, like these a, a lot of these stories, actually all of these stories that I'm talking about now um are dealing with, you know, poor women of color. So, I mean, first of all, this really underscores the fact that carceral feminism is largely like a white feminist thing because white feminists don't feel the same kind of fear or they they don't face the same kind of repercussions from relying so heavily on the the carceral state, not saying that they don't, obviously they, many of them still do, but yeah. So, so all these drug laws and everything, like just the fact that the entire police state grew out of a COINTELPRO like crackdown on the civil rights movements. And that's what it's there for. Like, that's what it's been used for this entire time is cracking down on movements that threaten the status quo, threaten white supremacy, threaten capitalism, you know, sending someone to jail or like ruining their life in that way. And then, you know, when they get out, they're banned from voting for the rest of their life. They're banned from accessing welfare. They're banned from all of these things. There's absolutely no way that they're going to be able to make their lives in a quote unquote respectable, like they're not going to be able to go like start a business or work anywhere or support themselves. So it's like, you're just tearing apart these communities. You're contributing to people who have nothing else you're just you're contributing to more abusive behavior within within communities so it's just sick um so and this is certainly like we're not saying that this what is the intention of because carceral feminists would never define themselves as like carceral feminists you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's it's more how like the the feminist movement has been absorbed by the carceral state and by corporate capitalism and is used as justification to push these incredibly like racist misogynistic Mm -hmm. like laws in favor of capital accumulation and in favor of extreme wealth disparity and a continuation of like patriarchy and the status quo. And as Maxi said, these policies might be supported by feminists who don't experience the threat of police violence as acutely. Mm-hmm. So it it's just like less on their radar, or they might be under the impression that locking up and convicting abusers really is the way to it really is the way to like more equality you know um so it's not like these things are like ill-intended it's just that they have Mm -hmm. extremely just negative repercussions especially Mm -hmm. when like movements when movements start to get absorbed by neoliberalism and start to be mainstreamed that way like I mean, it's the same with like veganism or with anti-racism or um, with all these things that we've talked about before. It's like the the intention of the policymakers are never to actually like bolster those marginalized communities, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, or even if they think that they are in practice, it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, 
So, yeah. Um, so uh, another story is of the, they're called the New Jersey Four. So these are four queer black women and they were walking down the street in uh, New Jersey. And uh, there was a young man who was selling DVDs on a table and he stopped them and like sexually propositioned them in a really aggressive and harassing way. And they were just really embarrassed and they just kept walking um, and tried not to like make eye contact or whatever. He started following them um, and then just like escalating what he was yelling, escalating violence, like just becoming more and more aggressive. Um, they finally turned around to confront him. And then a physical fight ensued where he pulled out patches of one woman's hair. He choked the other woman and spit on a third one. And then one of the women pulled out a knife and said she would use it if he didn't stop doing this. Um, so a bystander intervened at that time. And then it's actually unclear who actually used the knife, but the man did get stabbed. And eyewitnesses reported that there was significant aggression on his part and that they were acting in self-defense, but nevertheless, they were charged with a felony and convicted by a jury of all white women and sentenced to wow. prison time. And three of them are out and one of them is still in there. <laughs> and like wow. the media coverage on it was so completely homophobic and sexist. And they really fell through the cracks of like any anyone who would have come forward. Like Af the African community leadership didn't come forward because they were queer. And it mm -hmm. was like presented in a very homophobic way. Um, a women's group didn't come forward because they were black. Um, so they just really... <sighs> We're just failed. All through the cracks. Yeah, yeah, we're just failed on on all parts by everyone. Yeah. And yeah. That's super upsetting. So yeah, I think I'm not actually going to share uh, the fourth story because it's just really horrific and I, I don't think uh, – it adds it adds much more to you know the horror that we've already shared um but yeah you can see clearly that carceral feminism fails a lot of really vulnerable women and like not just fails them like ruins their lives um for the rest of their lives and it's really like the the carceral state or incarceration that fails women and any sort of feminism that advocates for a strengthening of that apparatus ultimately isn't isn't a feminist endeavor because it it leaves so many women of color and poor women like so much more vulnerable than they were in the first place in the past five decades there's been a huge increase in the number of people it, obviously in the number of people who are incarcerated, but notably in the number of women, like it's the fastest growing population yeah. out of in the prison system. So I honestly had to like look this up five different times because I like didn't believe it. But in 1970, there were only 5,600 women who were incarcerated in the United States. Like 5,600, this was in 1970. Like this was not 300 mm -hmm. years ago when there was like no one yeah. you know when there when the population was a lot smaller like it just really baffled me um, but in 2013 111,300 women in state and federal prison and another 102,400 women in local jail so i didn't do the calculation but that's literally like a 100,000% increase i mean it's <laughs> 
<laughs> no, like actually, wait. They're like 1,000%. No, it's more than that. Whatever. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh-huh. Um, and by the way, these numbers don't include trans women who are incarcerated in men's jails and prisons, uh-huh. which is like another horrific issue where those women are much more vulnerable to being sexually abused in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and by the way, the majority of these women have experienced physical and or sexual abuse prior to their arrest and often also uh, experience abuse in jail. Mm-hmm. So like, like incarceration is no friend of ours, mm-hmm. you know, it's no friend of feminisms, it's no ally to towards women. And for a really long time, like before I became aware, especially through the work of Elizabeth Bernstein of like the nefarious turn that this could take, that seems very logical, right? To just like enforce persecution towards perpetrators. And I I was actually thinking, I digress a little bit again, (laughs) but I was thinking about when I was younger, how my mother and father would always tell me that if anyone... That if any man tries to like offer me candy, you know, or like tries to <laughs> yeah. like, you know, if if anyone causes me any harm, the first thing that I needed to do was run to the police for help. And mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, there's like a whole bunch of white privilege in there because like obviously mm-hmm. I don't think that a black mother would necessarily um, advise the same thing to her children of color. But Mm-mm. there was I was very much raised with this belief that the police was there to protect me and that if someone was arrested, it's because they they were supposed to be punished. Like we're socialized to think that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that women for so long have, you know, been sexually abused with like complete impunity on the side of men that it makes sense that they would want that system to change and that they would think like a good way to change it would be to in, increase like the number of arrests on men who abuse them. Mm-hmm. But like the reality is quite different. These types of policies overwhelmingly harm, you know, poor people and classes that are already marginalized, but they don't do anything to destabilize the the men who are in power mm-hmm. and who so very often, as we have seen, abuse people for ab- abuse women for so, so long with like, just like completely no consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've actually heard that uh, women of color, especially in the United States, like teach their children, like, if a cop comes up to you, like, keep your hands visible, like, like, don't say anything, like, you know what I mean? Like, telling them all these things about how to just like, go along with what they're doing and don't fight back. And you know what I mean? So it's like, of course, these people aren't gonna, like, like, so many sexual assault cases are not even reported and like i feel like this carceral feminism or this focus on you know the police and punitive measures is partly responsible for that because i'm sure so many low-income women of color do not go to the police because they know that they are putting themselves in danger of being arrested and jailed if they do that Mm -hmm. and so you know and and then on top of that Sure, you know, we can raise all this money to try and prosecute abusers, but how does that work? I mean, Weinstein didn't get any anything land on him because it's like, oh, there's no proof, you know? I think like he's how like many it's still on trial? Okay, but I well, see what you mean. I mean, I mean, like okay, John Gomeshi in Canada or whatever, you know, all these men. I mean, um, these men are like our presidents, you know, and our CEOs. Exactly right, but but it, but at the same time, it's like okay, great, you know, the Me Too movement, like they're raising all this money for women to be able to have resources to prosecute their abusers. 
awesome. Like if they want to prosecute, then that's great. Like they should have the resources available, but prosecution rarely works. I mean, <laughs> like 994 out of 1000 rapists walk free. So, you know, the the court system itself isn't set up to actually punish people and the wrong people are getting punished. And if you do want to prosecute, like you're going to you're going to have to relive that trauma in a very public way. You're going to be torn down. You know, the the other lawyers are going to look for anything in your character to rip you apart and paint you as a liar and you might go through all of that and just you know, ultimately not have the quote unquote proof that you need, even though you are the proof that it happened, like you were there, you're a direct eyewitness. Um, yeah, you might go through all of that and, and not get any justice anyway. So then it's just, it's not a strategy to deal with like the overall problem of rape culture, the overall problem of capitalist patriarchal domination. Because, you know, I don't feel any safer. Like if I go out at night, I don't I don't feel like, oh, I'm not going to get sexually assaulted because we have this police state in place. I still feel just as vulnerable as a woman and just like I have to be on guard all the time. So how is it helping, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I wasn't I was a little bit unclear about the difference between the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. So the 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 Time's Up movement grew out of the Me Too movement, but it was started by a group of over 300 women in Hollywood with high profile leaders, including Reese Witherspoon, Natalie Portman, and Shanka Rhimes and and Shonda Rhimes. And it's called the Time's Up Legal Fund. It's a it's a source of legal and financial support for women and men who want to fight sexual misconduct across the justice system. So it's raised over $20 million so far. When I read about this, I was, I was conflicted because, you know, in a sense, it's like obviously so important that, and I do like that there's a focus on like poor women who want to press charges, but who can't because it's expensive because our system is fucked up. Um, but then I also felt like, you know, it was kind of funneling at least the material efforts that were arising from the Me Too movement directly into the justice system and um, strengthening the arm of the police system as a direct response to, you know, all of these horrible stories that were coming out. So, you know, I mean, the future will tell um what comes about this initiative and I'm definitely not, you know, tossing it out altogether, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as I just said, like the, the litigation route doesn't actually usually prove successful for women who are abused. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So before we end the episode on perhaps a more optimistic note, or at least highlighting what is being done um, by many amazing feminist to denounce carceral feminism. I did want to mention um, that in France, because I, you know, I live here for the listeners who don't know, um, the hashtag me too was like also very much took off here. But there was another hashtag uh, that took off called balance ton port, which is like, essentially denounce your uh, pig, <laughs> which <laughs> from a species standpoint, actually, like, also, also really upset me because like, not only do we, you know, not only are rapists, like our pigs not rapists and are 
rapists, not pigs. Um, like obviously there's so much wrapped up in like animality as a social status and like the racial implications that that has held throughout history. And also I felt like it was just a way of like, like, come on, like say things how it is, like say, like denounce your abuser or denounce Mm -hmm. your Weinstein or whatever. Like, why do we need to say denounce your pig? Because like it further mystifies this figure of like the rapist as if they're not just like our, our brothers and our cousins and our uncles and our friends, like, and that rape isn't all around us. Do you think it's like denounce your capitalist? Like, do you think that capital like relates to that? Because like in English pigs, we call like capitalists porky um no like por is really like pig here is more used to just like talk about someone who's like disgusting Mm. um but even like if it was capitalist i just don't agree with like using animals like to refer to that Mm. um i just thought it was like kind of an unfortunate hashtag Mm -hmm. just made us like a little bit further from like calling yeah calling things the way that they are you know Mm -hmm. but anyway so following this hashtag denounce your pig campaign um in in france there's a law being debated proposed by the ministry of equality between men and women or that's what it translates to um or that's like how i translated it um anyway so the ministry of equality between men and women that plans to set up a new police force to legally and financially criminalize street harassment so amongst other things this would include fines for catcalling and like there are a lot of debates even between feminists here because some feminists uh are bringing up arguments like and and arguments that we've very much tackled today around like you know this is not the route that we should be taking this is not like we shouldn't be training like more police to protect us like the police just like by definition like is not set up to protect women um Mm -hmm. and to protect the interests of anyone that aren't like financially well off and like cis white dudes essentially Mm -hmm. um but yeah like that is very much a bill that's like that has garnered a lot of strength and popularity since the, you know, hashtag denounce your pig campaign. Um, And another example is in 2014, Belgium introduced penalties, including a jail sentence for up to one year for remarks intending to express contempt for a person because of his or her gender. And there, there's a lot of other countries in Europe that are, that have in the past or are planning to adopt bills that further criminalize um, like sexist misconduct and it's something that you know the concerns we're bringing up are are things that feminists should be very mm-hmm. vigilant of yeah. so shall we leave it on a slightly more positive note with what what can we do instead yes <laughs> number one economic redistribution <laughs> abolish Abolish capitalism capitalism. (laughs) if everyone had the material basis to live a you know a good life then people would not be in positions where they would be stuck with their abusers like they would be so much more empowered to live wherever they want um yeah it, it just it would solve so many things that we're dealing with today right and like obviously maxi and i are are the solution we're not just like well these people haven't thought about it we should just abolish capitalism Mm -hmm. but it's very important that we 
take steps towards abolishing capitalism or that is that is like the main guiding principle around which feminists are uniting so things that we've mentioned throughout this episode like um making it of the utmost importance in our movements to you know support welfare efforts and limit incarceration and um support unions that are going to ensure a safety net for women who denounce harassment Mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, like redistributive policies, as you said, are like, are literally what, like Mm -hmm. the most, the most important thing that we should be focusing on. Yeah. But also things like universal healthcare, because in the States mm-hmm. or even in Canada, because, you know, we have universal healthcare to some extent, but there's a lot of things that aren't covered. And then for all of those things, you have to have insurance. And typically you get that through your employer. And so if your your healthcare and like your benefits and everything is coming to you from your employer, then you're linked to them. And like, if they're abusing you, or if you're in an abusive position, then you probably, you know, you might be in a situation where you can't afford to leave that, that employer. So yeah, I mean, things like healthcare, childcare, like all of these things, this is why we're talking about like abolishing capitalism, because it's like all of these things should be taken care of as your human rights. And if they were, then people would be so much more empowered to not have to be in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you just said, like, if you are at risk of losing your job, you're gonna face financial precarity, but even more like you're you're going to lose healthcare in so many in so many countries. Mm -hmm. So it's like we need to also put an emphasis on like accessing mental and physical health resources um, for victims. And those should be free and readily accessible to anyone who needs them. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know. I can't help but think like, what of those $20 million that, that, you know, the Time's Up campaign has just raised went instead to like, maybe helping fund those services Mm -hmm. instead of like helping people press charges. Like, again, this is really difficult to talk about because like, obviously, I understand like why there is a need for that. And I'm not saying that feminists should like single handedly be responsible for dismantling the carceral state. But like, Mm -hmm. I just can't I just don't think that that's the best use of like our money and of like Mm -hmm. the way to capitalize on like all of these just like all this amazing visibility that so many survivors are getting Mm -hmm. or taking yeah and Victoria Law also talks about like community responses and how to like organize with like your friends and families and like create you know social networks that can help prevent or that can help protect you from uh, abusive situations etc and then just generally in the public eye i mean i i like that the me too campaign has come out because at least it allows us to talk more openly about rape culture and to try to address it i think one way we have to address it is in our media because so much media there's so much media that i refuse to consume because it's obviously from the vantage point of the male gaze and it's incredibly enraging to me i can't even stand it this is like a whole other topic that i can rant about um but i think yeah we have to start having you know media created by women you know and directed by women and filmed by women and and yeah just just things that don't reinforce this idea in all of our heads that 
you know, these are the gender norms that we should be following. And this is a woman's role and this is a woman's sexuality and this is a man's sexuality and just all these things just in general that we have to dismantle. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's something that Reese Witherspoon talks a lot about and has made big strides for. Like I know that her show Big Little Lies really focuses on like media created by – or was basically like she got turned down by a bunch of like big production houses um they didn't want to like let her direct her own show so she went off with like nicole kidman and reese witherspoon and like some other famous hollywood person Mm -hmm. and they created their own show that was like to kind of showcase like different stories of women um that were like more realistic and narratives that Mm -hmm. were actually told by them and i love that show by the way it's so good really oh my god i still it it is amazing ah damn yeah yeah, but the like legal defense fund, like she was one of the organizers of it, so it, it's on their agenda. Um, and as mm-hmm. I think that there are so many great initiatives being waged, you know, through the Me Too movement and through the Times Up campaign. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, as we've said, it's like ultimately this money's being raised to help people press charges, and it just worries me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't do anything to like reshape the social and economic relations that we need to reshape (laughs) to actually make any headway so yeah and there's a lot of other organizations doing great work on this um someone i really wanted to talk about is dean spade who wrote an amazing book called normal life that um talks about like the carceral politics of the trans movement and that that's really amazing. Um, that book is like like changed my life basically. So I really recommend that. Um, and I know yeah, Elizabeth Bernstein talks about it a lot. Um, and we'll link a really great video by um the Barnard uh like I, I forget, but but by <laughs> by Barnard basically. Um, and there's also the work of Insight. Uh, creative inventions, the storytelling and organizing project, and the revolution starts at home, which started off as a zine, but then garnered so much popularity that it became a book. And there's just a a, a long, long history of women, notably women of color, resisting both domestic and state violence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's like obviously we don't want to. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. erase that or mm-hmm. not like give credit where credit's due. Um, admittedly, like Maxie and I are super interested in all of this, but we're pretty like, I don't know, we're pretty new at it. Like, <laughs> I, I guess like, I, you know, it's funny saying this because I was I started off this episode being like, oh my God, and Elizabeth Bernstein was my advisor. But this is just like such a huge and complex topic, you know, that I certainly don't have all the answers to, but that is like yet another prism through which I view like social movements mm-hmm. when there starts to be like an emphasis on like carceral politics of any kind. I'm like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, I'm 100% new to this. Like I said, I only really heard about it from Rev Left Radio, and that was very recently. <laughs> so I'm just kind of dipping my toes into this, but obviously it's incredibly important and it makes so much sense. Totally. So I hope we hope that you enjoyed this episode and we'd love to hear your feedback uh, on it. We have some patrons to shout out before we go as well. Um, thank you so, so much to Nikki, 
Nick Wagner and Elsa, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Elsa Turner Gibb. So thank you so much for your support. Um, it's going a long way. We're, we've almost saved up to get a new microphone, <laughs> which we're excited about. So if you'd like to support the show, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can sign up to be a monthly patron. Um, or of course you could just share the episode with your friends or family who you think would like it. Thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart, everybody. And we'll see you in two weeks. She's cool.